Hello and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads. I am your host for this week. I'm Aura and I'm here with Storm King and Kagyu. Say hi, guys. Hey, everyone. Hey, everybody. Once again, our uh, excellent friend and co-host Dharmakirti is gone. Um, and he will be back next week, I believe. And we'll be back to our regular scheduled um, podcasting. One note is that uh, we're recording this on a new app because um, Google Hangouts has discontinued their functionality for whatever reason. And um, But hopefully it's coming through fine on the YouTube. Um, and we once again want to welcome everybody to leave comments uh, in the chat. And if there's anything uh, worthwhile, we will answer those questions or read out those comments live on the stream. For those of you, again, most of our listeners listening on our um, RSS feed, you will be getting this broadcast probably about the same time as our last week's broadcast. It still hasn't gone up on the RSS, again, because this is sort of summer vacation time and things are moving a little bit slow. But um, this should go up relatively soon. And if you're hearing these now sort of back to back, don't worry, we'll be back to our once a week uh live streaming on the weekend and then posting on the RSS feed on Mondays um, very soon, probably uh, within the next couple of weeks. So that's all the business to get out of the way this time. And by way of introduction to our topics, I this is going to be yet another relaxed fit, uh, comfy and cozy episode. We don't have a single topic we're going to hit, but we have a number of things we've been chatting about as always. And the focus of this podcast is, as always, the Dharma, Buddhism, broadly considered. Um, but, uh, you know, we have a lot of fun whenever when we let ourselves just talk about what's on our minds. So with that said, was there anything that uh, anybody wanted to bring up as a as an introductory thing or anything to get out of the way? I've got several things that I've written down that we discussed talking about. We can, uh, we can start wherever you like. Um, one thing I had considered talking about because it's come up a lot recently is uh, psychology. In particular, uh, Freudian stuff, and then his failed groupie Lacan. And I think this stuff is pretty. Uh, to be to be quite frank, it seeks to be therapeutic, so it's it's essentially a therapy. Um, but it's really weird. It's really really weird. And I thought it'd be interesting to talk about that and, and you know uh, show how the Dharma is uh, much better than that. Uh, much more widely applicable and far, far less uh, strange. Yeah, I'm very interested in that. Um, I right off the bat, as I've gotten older and and looked back on it, I used to study a lot of this stuff um, in college, and not like psychology, like the psychology department, but you know the sort of critical studies kind of side of it, like Lacan. And looking back, especially on Freud. I start to wonder even if it is, you said, you know, it's a, it's a therapy, it's a, it's supposed to be therapeutic. It's meant to be therapy. I question whether we can say that with a hundred percent accuracy that, that Freud and his followers actually intend to help people. Well, you know that's, I mean? yeah, no, you're right. I, it, there's definitely, uh, I definitely have a high level of suspicion that it's not a good faith effort to help others. Um, it may be, and in fact, there are some quotes of Freud saying, like, uh, he was overseas and had spoken to someone who said something to the effect of, "I have to get back soon, lest my victims become, unless my my victim, <laughs> unless my patients become well." <laughs> Freudian yeah. slip there. Yeah, Freudian Freud. slip indeed. And <laughs> you know, I, 
obviously that's him being witty and you know freud was obviously extremely intelligent and he was very social person he had a lot of friends and i'm sure he had all kinds of bone mo like that you know however that is it is a very telling thing to say you know <laughs> like it reminds me of john mccain uh, my fellow prisoners <laughs> right yeah i Go ahead. No, I think it, with Freud, it, it's, it is kind of interesting. I'm not familiar at all with Lacan, but Freud is um, – it, it is kind of an interesting question. Did he actually design his ideas with the idea of helping people? Because, I mean, there's definitely case studies where he seems to note that is occurring, but uh, it is very questionable because it certainly seems to have been used as a system of, um, well – deconstruction and degeneration of society since he's since he died that's for sure one of my um, my favorite personalities from philosophy who i've talked about before uh, rick roderick he's he was a lecturer i think at duke uh maybe i have that right he was he worked at several different universities and he's got really good lecture series that are still up on youtube they're rips of a, an old vhs program that he was on and uh, he talks he has a unit he calls the masters of suspicion and it's it's essentially lots of critical theory people and he includes nietzsche in this not as a critical theory person but it's sort of like they're coming from this frame of suspicion like well a lot of what freud is doing is sort of it's like iconoclastic of classical western ideas and he what he's got for you what freud has got for you is suspicion first and foremost like suspicion that your motives aren't what you think they are um, suspicion of your moral character all kind of stuff like that. So I, that's that's a why it comes off like that. Suspicion of your of your loving family relations. I mean, yeah. some of the things that are most foundational to having a, a stable sense of well being in the world. You know, um, is is like your relationship to your parents, to your brother and sister, and everything. And you know, people often have problems with those relationships before and after Freud. So it's not like he invented that. You know, he, it's not like he created those issues, but he he was sort of unique in finding <laughs> in, in creating this idea that even your even your loving relationships, you know, your positive, you know, you, the attachment you feel to your own mother and that a mother feels to her own child, that that is pathological, which yeah. is, you know, it's really dark. <laughs> that, that's that's pretty absurd. And I mean, there are going to be negatives in every relationship because that's just the truth of you know, any relationship you have is going to have its up and downs. Just that's just the nature of change in life. But like people like Adorno sort of built on that, like Adorno with the authoritarian personality, he, he basically says like you liking and loving your family is pathological because it's authoritarian. Yeah. And, uh, Freud was just you know, the, the groundwork for that. I think that was like the maturation of that particular ideology strain. Yeah. And, you know, there's something to be said for, um, you know, from a Buddhist perspective about, uh, you know, your attachments um, and being being able to to um, see through the illusion that underlies your attachments. And some of the hardest things to do that with are normal, healthy, loving relationships, because, of course, the Buddha wasn't teaching that you shouldn't have loving relationships. On the contrary, he he encouraged those kinds of and many of the metaphors like in the in many of the suttas are, are talking about like um you know as a mother's love for her child so is my love for the dharma you know not that's not a direct quote but you know what i mean 
Um, and despite the fact that famously the, the story of the Buddha's life involves him leaving his wife and child and everything, it also, in, and you know, betraying, so to speak, uh, his father's wishes for him to be a great king someday. Um, people, people love to point that out and then forget that like the Buddha came back to his wife and child. Now he was a monastic from that point on, but he still acted as a father to his child and like was, you know, loyal to his wife from a certain perspective. It's not like he left them and like, got a pack of cigarettes and oh plus back, even you know? more even more than that i mean rahula he actually gave him like uh, he 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 made him the first novice who then in turn rahula was able to gain enlightenment from that which arguably yeah. is much better like his mom sent him to go get his inheritance from from the buddha and uh, oh he manages to obtain enlightenment as well how much of a better thing is that and his wife yeah. also became a student as well right I know I've read I that somewhere. I, I don't actually know much about his about his wife, to be honest. And also, it's not like they were cut. It's not like he left him in a hut, you know. With the, he left him in like an opulent palace <laughs> with a legions of servants and stuff. So. Right. But uh, to to bring it back to like you know Freud and Lacan and stuff. Um, actually, I don't know what I was. I, I don't know what my point was when I went. What's interesting that. though is, I mean, Freud does talk about attachment, but he's not really talking about going beyond the attachment in any way. He seems to almost be of the opinion that these things are inescapable, that you cannot escape them, that we're just reduced down to, and often it seems we're re reduced down to these really perverse sexual desires more than anything else, and that, this is all yes. that we're about. Everything with these guys is is dick and, and balls and and it's it's really weird, man. Like, okay, so Lacan, short summary of Lacan. Basically, you're an infant, and at and because you're an infant, inherently you wanna have sex with your mom, and you learn as you're being socialized that you can't have sex with your mom, and you also that you're gonna have to take on language, which is gonna reduce your kind of animal awareness, and this is seen as a castration which is a cost to inner society. And so because you had to give that up and because you had to like, you were forced into this change, you have resentments and things built up from that. And these are the source of all the different psychological problems. So yeah, it is kind of true that when you get kind of brought into the fold of society and language and culture, you do lose some of that like wild Aboriginal dream time, unattached consciousness that like babies and, and animals have. Uh, but I don't understand where the idea that babies want to fuck their moms inherently comes from and why we have to call this a castration. I think it's like being like weirdly sexualized and it's sort of like kind of in line. Uh, it's, it seems to me very perverse and pedophilic and really fucked up that so many people are into it, to be honest. It almost says more about the minds of the people who came up with this stuff than it actually says about anything outside of that, honestly. Because, of course... Yeah. I mean, I have low regard for psychology. Just, I mean, if if nothing else, because it, it's essentially un, none of these things are testable in any real sense, and so it's a pseudoscience. I mean, the, I think Feynman said it best: it's a cargo cult science. It has the appearance sometimes of it, but it really isn't anything. And it's used as this kind of vehicle to spread these really perverse and um, wild ideas that have no basis in reality. It's, it's a lot of like pomp and circumstance and big words and things being complex for the sake of complexity. And so people can have something to jockey status over and they can be erudite and they can sniff their leather bound books in their office, you know, and, and, and jack off with each other and play chess in the library and, and 
it's not underpinned right. by any kind of coherent metaphysics at all. Those questions aren't even asked. No, it's it's literally all just McCummies. That's it. Yeah. Freud Freud himself came up with the idea of oral fixation, right? Now, but Freud himself died of horrible mouth cancer brought on by his inability to stop smoking cigars. And he also was uh, a cocaine user. I don't know if one could I, I don't know if you'd call him a cocaine addict or what, but um he you know, that's neither here nor there. People have their vices, I suppose, but it's just, you know, beyond ironic that he was like, you know, diagnosing other people as being like slaves to their, these weird fixations that they picked up as infants. And here he is like totally unable to stop using cocaine and smoking cigars all the damn time. Yeah. yeah it's like, it's like, Hey, that's you, you smoke cigars because you, you want to suck on wieners. By the way, I love smoking cigars. <laughs> was he the one who's responsible for the quote? Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. I, yeah. Is that yeah. him or was that a response to him? I think that I think that it's reason it's so famous is that it was him that somebody okay. was trying to, trying to get him to like interpret something phallically and he said sometimes again you know this we can we can rag on these guys all we want but like you know clearly like he was you know very smart and witty and all this stuff and, you know he wasn't like a moron walking around he was just wrong that's all <laughs> yeah. interesting. Uh, one thing I've I I've, I mean I might be remembering this wrong but the circumstances of his death like as he was in the very late stages of cancer he apparent like from what I understood he had just finished reading a novel and then had his doctor inject him with a fatal dosage of morphine is that that's, true I didn't know that I think that he actually did basically have himself uh, arranged his own death by like it was some kind of drugs. I I can definitely that's a far understand. cry from getting walking around under the bombs. I'll just put that. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, he was in exile in England at the time too. So mm. I can understand though being in where just like your base state of being alive is agony, and there is you've been told medically there's no way out of this. Like yeah, it's okay if you want to. I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah, I, it's understandable. I totally, I totally agree, and I don't really have judgment to pass on on people in that situation. But you know, somebody like Freud sort of sets himself up for that kind of judgment when he spends his whole life, like you know. <laughs> oh yeah, I just looked it up. Apparently, he was administered a fatal dose of morphine by Doctor Josephine Staus when he died. That yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I want to say a little bit more about Lacan. Um, yeah, he is another one of these guys I studied in college. Again, this. <sighs> This, I think it's still this way in universities. It, you know, um, the English departments in American universities, Western universities in general, um, was, oh, we just got a really interesting uh, comment from Karsten, but I'm not going to read it now because it's going to get us way off topic. I'm going to come back to that one, Karsten. Um, so, yeah, so um, Jacques, Jacques Lacan, he's a psychologist, right? Like, he's not a novelist or anything like this, but in English departments, you end up studying, like, Marcuse and Freud and um, and Adorno and um, Derrida and Jacques Lacan and people like this, um, precisely because they are, as your professor uh, Roderick would say, Storm King, because they are masters of suspicion. So the whole point in English departments now is to pick apart meaning, to destroy meaning, and um, I. You know, this I don't think I'm enlightening any of our listeners about this. I think this is phenomenon is well, you know, everybody's well aware of it and stuff. But and, you know, you see it a lot in the like the pick, picking apart stuff as being sexist or racist or colonialist. And that is obviously a huge portion of it. And that's the most visible part to most people. But 
even when they're not talking about why men are bad, white people are bad, et cetera, et cetera, they're still doing this operation. And they, in fact, in a certain sense, guys like Lacan and Freud are more core to this mastery of suspicion, if you will, because they're they're just saying that they're, there's nihilism in it, right? That, that, that there is no meaning in it. it everything is power relations and stuff. That's why, you know, cultural Marxism is called cultural Marxism and not just cultural randomism, um, because it's an attempt to describe every thought about morality or meaning or goodness versus badness or anything is all just due to power relations, which is, you know, that's in Marx um, and Engels. But when, well, now I'm just saying stuff that I think a lot of people already know about cultural Marxism, but to bring it back to Lacan, Lacan was a friend, as you can tell from his name, Jacques Lacan. He was French. Um, I think he was actual an actual Frenchman, um, not a crypto Frenchman. Um, and uh, he, yeah, he was a Freudian psychologist. He studied in this whole school and everything. I think he's born like 1901 or something like that. And um, the thing he's most famous for is actually a pretty interesting and yeah, a pretty interesting concept called the mirror stage, which is not wrong on the surface of it. Like it's not to me, it's not an absurd idea. It, basically, the mirror stage is the moment in an infant's life when he or she can recognize that his or her image is in fact himself. Um, yeah, it's like the birth of the ego moment. Yes, exactly. And 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 Lacan locates the moment that that people that their egos are born in the in that dawning realization in the little baby that that thing that i'm looking at in the mirror is me i have an image like a, you know and that's the the beginning of this split and that's very interesting because you know um you know very intelligent animals can still not get that they're that they're that the mirror is them um some of them can maybe i guess but a most a lot of them can you know like a you know like a dog that can follow commands but then like looks behind the mirror for the dog in the mirror right whereas we a baby have, uh, interestingly we have two cats one male one female the male is a year older roughly than the female he knows that what he's looking at in the mirror is him but the girl kitty doesn't she doesn't get it so that like, i've seen i've seen our male cat have like water on him from because he he doesn't drink out of the bowl right he like dunks his whole face in it so his face gets wet and i've seen him look in the mirror and be like oh i'm wet now i'm gonna clean my face off with my paw and he was like wow. checking his face in the mirror looking for water but the girl really? cat will the girl cat will like do the little sideways walk with the hair standing up looking in the mirror like what is this cat doing here that looks just like me you yeah. know so it, it's it's crazy because it, you would think it would be like the same across all, all of these animals, but it's not right. It's tangent, I guess, but no, no, it's interesting. I love that. And um, so what's interesting I, about Lacan's mirror stage from a Buddhist perspective is that there's, there is a little bit of interesting material to work with there because he, you know, he talks about like this split forming in the consciousness of a human being because of the mirror stage that this realization that there's, there's a me that's having an inner experience and then there's a me that is perceived by the outside world and they aren't the same thing especially because you know according to lacan these babies are getting it when they still don't have full motor control so there's this weird holistic uh aspect of the mirror image but the internal experience is like holistic from one perspective but also like all broken up because they can't they don't have full motor control yet 
So, and he's really goes in depth on all this. You know, he made a whole career out of this mirror stage thing. He talked about it for like 50 years. So it goes on and on and on. And frankly, it starts to get a little bit boring if you hammer on it too long. But it is an interesting concept. And where I depart from Lacan is that he does this Freudian thing where once having established that this is an interesting idea and maybe actually has some basis in reality, like maybe that, that phenomenon really does happen, you know, it doesn't seem that far-fetched. Um, but once having established that, then he goes on to talk about how like it leads to, you know, people are un, uh, unbelievably broken all the time and there's no hope for healing this split. And then it leads to all kinds of things like Storm was talking about, like you, you want to fuck your mother and, all, you know, he just takes us in this incredibly freudian direction i guess something i've noticed is that a lot of these people like psychologists and scientists and and uh sociologists like their entire being their entire way of seeing things is 100 percent through the filter of language right and this is why they don't see any hope because they've they don't understand that they can never really ultimately understand but they've got this intuitive grasp of that fact because they're always going down all these convoluted rabbit holes and not really finding anything but suspicion and doubt and lack of sureness. And so they're like, oh, there's no hope here because it never becomes anything undoubtable and concrete and sure. They have no access to an experience that isn't egoic. They have no, there's no, there's no holistic experience like the baby has this left anymore. They're, they're totally trapped in it. And when you're totally trapped in it, it seems totally hopeless. You know, but so the solution like, oh, we can never heal this fragmentation. Well, the fragmentation, in a sense, yes, it does happen to you um, in that you don't really have a choice about that aspect of your development, but you're also – it's your present karma. You're constantly doing it to yourself. Your, your attachment and desires are constantly pulling you into this fragmented state, and that's why you're there. If you just don't do that, you won't be in that fragmented state, and that's what meditation is for, and that's what the dharma is for, and that's what all the practices are for. You won't have this divided divide between, you know, your consciousness as the Buddha nature, experiencing your ego and getting wrapped up in it because of your your delusions and attachments. You'll just be the consciousness, and you'll be aware of the ego uh, as an object. Well, it's interesting what you mentioned about science, though. I mean, being limited by language, because I mean, it seems that that might be true with the softer sciences, especially. Like, I, I guess the more you get in the direction of physics, the more it breaks down into mathematics. But even then, I guess a lot of it just is relying on sort of this kind of statistical measure where you're just looking at like the probability, the p-value of a distribution more than anything else. And so that's actually itself based off of this, this, this kind of uncertainty uh, in everything. Yeah, I think it, it probably comes in the most when you have to take that hard data and then make a uh, interpretation of it. Yep. And yeah. it seems like there's just a tendency with people to try and read into that whatever they want to read into that. And that's actually, I mean, with, with all of this, the whole like psychology thing, it seems to me like the problem is there's no idea of going beyond attachment in it. It's all boils down to these attachments exist and are inescapable in every single way. And they always just go refer back to that. Yeah. They, they're just, they just stop there. Like there's no consideration for uh, an unattached state or even like how these attachments, how they come to be. And there's really like, interestingly, no idea at all of like a, uh, a pure consciousness. There's, there's no like idea of inhabiting, the consciousness aspect of yourself and as all of the thought forms as something that the consciousness which you are is conscious of is that you know like they're 
they're, it's always they're always wrapped up together with no separation possible. Well, yeah, because I mean, if you think about it, like almost all of these people are, are materialist atheists, and so they're all they're they're never going to really want to deal with consciousness, except maybe as like this emergent property of the physical brain. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, they're not really going to be comfortable with anything else because, by definition, it would go against their pre-existing materialist worldview. As far as I'm concerned, that's been empirically proven wrong. There are so many examples of non-local consciousness, of consciousness remaining after a brain, people seeing them. You know, If you read about near-death experiences, they're super common. They happen all the time. People know impossible stuff like knowing a serial number of a duct that's in the huh? ceiling because when they died on the operating table, they floated up into the ceiling and read it. You know, they know like a 16 digit hexadecimal label on a piece of air conditioning equipment that there would be no way they would know, or they, they know what conversations happened in another room. You know, this is, this has been disproven. And, you know, if, if you want to read seventh cent, uh, seventh sense by Lynn Buchanan, investigate that stuff. Uh, pe- People are very successful at doing things like remote viewing and stuff like that. So this is consciousness is an emergent property. The physical brain has has pretty much been, in my opinion, completely blown out as as wrong. No, I definitely agree with you on that. It's again, it's it's just something that people kind of just have to. It's something that they're just kind of accepting because their worldview demands it. And so I don't, I think if anything, any kind of evidence that goes against it is something they're going to try and either find an explanation around or ignore. Well, the, the explanations that pathologize the world to bring it back to like psychology, because both the psychiatrist and the Buddha refer to themselves as doctors, right? There's passages in the sutras where the Buddha says, you know that the dharma is like medicine that you take but the buddha wants you to get well right like he wants yes. and and he also you know he wants you to th- be able to throw the medicine away right you know mm-hmm. I, I, after you're enlightened you're not a buddhist anymore right because what's the point right you know like this is not a final destination it's a path it's a path it's again and again and again called a path and the whole point of a path is that it has a you know a destination that you're going somewhere and um Although maybe psychiatrists, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists talk about, oh, you know, we have therapy so that you don't need therapy anymore. I, I really question whether any of them really mean that. <laughs> Certainly not Freud as, you know, in, you know, at the very beginning, Storm talked about his, his cute little thing about like, I need to get back to my... Uh, to my patients, be if they otherwise they might be well, you know. That is actually an interesting question. Has anyone? Does anyone who goes into therapy leave therapy for reasons aside from they don't no, want to spend the money anymore? I have a good friend that <laughs> I have a good friend that went to uh, a behavioral psychologist. I think. I've, yeah, and, I've heard CBD might be the one. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy yes. might be the one exception to this because it actually seems to work. But I have a friend that went to that and found it extremely helpful and then stopped going like with the agreement of his doctor and and it was years ago and he says yeah I still have benefits from that and I'm glad I did it and I'm glad I stopped. So you know that's great if that works for people more power to people. Yeah, yeah. I think if you have like a specific problem where with an identifiable cause like let's say I was in a car crash as a kid and it killed my brother and I have issues surrounding this I think you can go to therapy for that. And because there's these known quantities and there's actually something you can work on that's verifiable, then you can do really good. But like this general psychoanalysis thing is like a scam. Funny comment from Todd Wayland. Uh, Damn, I'm going in university for psychology. I guess I'll just debunk the whole thing. (laughs) 
Yeah, right on, man. You know, it's cool. Like I like I was saying earlier, I think maybe you weren't listening at that point, but you know, I went, I got a degree in English, and all I got, you know, all I I got was bullshit. But I also had a great time. I learned a lot, and I, you know, I just sort of by the end, I learned how to ignore all the bullshit and and take the good stuff. So, I do want to uh, blast through a few comments here. We've got some side chatter, but uh, maybe we can get enlightened on this. Uh, do you guys know anything? Actually, Evola didn't voluntarily go walk in a bombing raid. The what I've read on the subject suggested that he would literally just walk around Vienna while the Allies were bombing the city because he found it a good way to meditate on his place in the universe. Now this is what I've read. I don't know if it's a hundred percent true. Yeah, I don't know. Is that only self-reported that we have from him? You know, like maybe I don't know. It could be. I mean, he's um, yeah. He, he may he may not have been completely reliable in his in his autobiography. Like, there's some questions about whether he was actually a Baron, for instance. Yeah, or, or why there's not really any documentation. Yeah. No, well, I think that's a cool story. I'm going to choose to believe that it happened. Same. It it it's just so apropos for Evola and how ridiculous of a person he was. No, says, oh. in, in Path of Cinnabar, he says the opposite. So, all right, this is our homework for next week, guys. Is check out the passage in Path of Cinnabar. That is one of his I... few books I have not read, along with actually the Yoga of Power, which I've both been meaning to read. Those. I have not read Path of Cinnabar either. I've heard it's quite good. So we will th thank you, Carson, for that information. That's excellent. And uh, we'll we'll take it upon ourselves to look into that for next yes. time. Um, Storm, not to delegate you with this again, but you did such a good job last week. What, uh, what else do we have on our long ass thread? Okay, I have a bunch of different things written down. I was gonna talk about, so I made a graphic, I guess we can post in the show notes and I called it the Samsara Dukkha Treadmill. Okay, so everybody's heard of the hedonic treadmill. So the idea of the hedonic treadmill is, let me give you a real simple example. There's a guy, and this guy is unhappy because he's overweight. So he has a desire to lose weight. So he loses weight. And then once he's, once he's lost weight and he looks the way he wants, he feels better. But then he gets used to that level of satisfaction, and some other problem comes up. Oh, no. So then he's got to do something else to feel better again. And then he gets used to that level of feeling better. And then something else comes up. So this is, I guess we'll post this picture, but here's where it starts, right? So, so this is a wheel going clockwise. So you've got desire. You desire something. It's amplified by the media, technology, society. You get the thing you want. Then you feel better. You get used to feeling better. Suffering and the feeling of lack come back. You blame that suffering on lacking something specific instead of this cycle itself. And then you go back to desiring something else. And then it's amplified by the media and society and you get it and you feel better and you get used to feeling better. And then the suffering and the feeling of lack comes back. So then you blame something specific for that pain instead of the cycle. And then you desire again and you go round and round and round. And that is the Samsara Dukkha treadmill. And that is essentially like my outline of uh, that particular part of samsaric consciousness that it's like, you're like a hunger ghost. That's how like desire works. So, you know, there's, there's, this is in reference to, uh, I'm probably going to murder this pronunciation, but Sankara Dukkha. And that yeah, is Dukkha. Yeah. Dukkha. Okay. That yeah. is the, um, that's just the basic unsatisfactoriness of conditioned existence. Things are impermanent. Yeah. So yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say for our listeners, um, for non-Buddhist listeners, Dukkha is the term that when when people hear that the Buddha said life is suffering, 
the suffering is the, is the word dukkha. Um, and I, anytime Dharmakirti is not here, I'm always hesitant to like go too far into these things because I inevitably get something wrong. Um, but that's that's in there. And the, the word suffering, uh, the word dukkha gets translated different ways. And of course, it's, it's difficult to get the exact meaning. But um, uh, another way to put it is like unsatisfactoriness or something like it, it just it's dukkha is the feeling that something's not quite right, I guess it's suffering. Um, so yeah, so this cycle, the cycle, uh, the samsaric cycle of, of dukkha is, that's just the term, I'm just explaining the term that you're using there, Storm. Let me, uh, uh, let's see, hold ahead. on. Uh, yeah. so this is from Wiki. Um, I've heard that it can be translated as like an uneasiness or just a discomfort in general, more so than like suffering. I mean, it could equally be translated as those. The, what yeah. I have here is, the, the dukkha of conditioned experience, this includes a basic unsatisfactoriness pervading all existence, all forms of life, because all forms of life are changing and permanent without any inner core of self-essence or substance. On this level, the term indicates a lack of satisfaction, a sense that things never measure up to our expectations or standards. Yep. So the, the cycle that you just described is, you know, it's like the hedonic treadmill, right? Mm -hmm. and, it, and it can easily be seen in something that is clearly addictive behavior. And I think the real key to getting a, a, a sliver of enlightenment about this is that it it's true of things that are like subcritical in, in their addictiveness. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. let's take a hardcore alcoholic who hates, you know, who hates being alcoholic and wants to stop drinking, but can't. So this person is on your cycle there on your, on your wheel that you described, you know, they, they have this burning desire to have alcohol and they get the alcohol and they feel better right or they feel they enjoy it maybe and then they keep drinking or whatever and then they get sick or or they fall asleep and then they the next day they have a horrible hangover and they feel like shit and their health goes bad and also they feel regret you know they feel a feeling of worthlessness or whatever because they're you know yet again trapped in this cycle and then the sight of the sight or thought of more bottles of alcohol starts to make them desire that more and then you know this the whole cycle goes through again i, I i'm sorry for, to belabor the point i mean everybody gets what i'm talking about um that's just classic addictive behavior right but what what you, i think what you're getting at storm is that like there's all kinds of things that are like not recognized as like addictions or whatever like it, it like the very nature of, of existence itself right uh, at least i'm sorry existence um has this feature has the same sort of cycle at work in it basically all the time am, am i paraphrasing you correctly? yeah yeah the point that i that i'm the reason i made it is because he was actually seeing so many po people post like that feel with no gf which man i'm with you i sympathize but uh you'll get a gf and then you will still have this this lack and unsatisfactoriness will come back and it'll be something else and you know conditioned existence is suffering and it's it's suffering in exactly this way, and you can't feel feel <clears throat> fill that hole with anything but the truth, but enlightenment. I think the only thing that makes it better. Yeah, I think there was a I think it was Milarepa said it was it's like trying to quench your thirst by drinking salt water. Yes, yes, and the Dharma would be like spring water. Exactly. Yeah, I think. Um... You know, one of the great things about uh, understanding the Dharma and practicing it and everything is that you can um, you can sort of use it piecemeal. Um, 
and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that like I don't I don't think people should use it wholesale. <laughs> they should, you know. But I, you know, we said a little bit about this last week. Um, that that you know, one of the cool things is that you can just take a very small part of it, sit down and look at it and decide if you believe it to be true or not. And the same thing goes with like investigating these these phenomena, you know, like that. Uh, it's a really good point, Storm, about you know that that feel when no GF. Um, yeah, you get the GF, and I, you know, I'm just you know, people do the same thing with their weddings. You know, I'm finally going to get married, and, th- and this is not just a girlfriend, but this is my life partner and everything, and it's wonderful and it's good. And it's not that people shouldn't do it, it but it's that um, if you think that that you're no longer going to have this weird nagging feeling of incompleteness inside of you, uh, and you get married, and and then you you realize you still have that feeling despite you you love your awesome wife and everything. The danger is you're gonna like start blaming the marriage or the wife or something for for yep. that problem, but that's that's not where it's coming from. You know what I mean? That 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 should be a source of support and love and everything, not like something you resent because it failed to make you fully happy. Because nothing, nothing, you know, nothing in this wheel is ever going to make you fully happy. The wheel, it's a fucking wheel, like it goes around again. Mm-hmm. No, that's beautiful, and it's and it's true. And what's interesting is that like it sounds like we're saying there's no hope. You're fucked. Life is suffering. But what actually happens, this, the way I like to put it, is that when you become aware of the wheel, you start to see the wheel, you start to get some equanimity, you progress in your practice, you progress in your understanding, you get a couple of satories, you know, when you, maybe you make it all the way to the end. What happens is the thing that causes the, the lack of inherent existence, the conditioned nature of conventional phenomena, what that becomes instead of a hole that needs to be filled, it's a freedom where there's nothing, nothing limiting you in particular. You know, that, that like Nagarjuna says, you know, um, yes, we may not be able to pin this down in something particular, but that's a freedom. That's an openness. You know, that that allows you that reenchants the world because you could you you come out of this mode where everything has to be nailed down and you have to have these things to fill the hole. And there's just like a peacefulness to it. And there you are. You're in the moment. You're free and you see how it works and you're no longer a victim. That's actually a really interesting point. Like the one thing I have noticed about meditation practice is it actually does have this ability to re-enchant the world. Like you said, it it means you no longer feel the uh, this this sense that everything has to be nailed down or everything has to work in a particular way. And it's that that kind of detachment from that is really liberating. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, Carson, uh, when we were, I was flubbing around trying to think of a good way to translate uh dukkha he added the comment in completion i think that's a good one too um there's something in, in buddhism which is very core it's funny it's it's a very uh basic teaching yet also considered a little bit advanced which is the three characteristics um and it's the three ways in which um phenomena are incomplete i guess you could put it um and it's uh impermanence unsatisfactoriness and not self oh so um anicca, also, also anicca, the, oh sorry, sorry. Ah, i was also called the three marks of existence yeah the three marks yeah sometimes called the, um, the one I, the translation i'm used to most is uh, the three characteristics and the idea is that in meditation you start to see the three characteristics kind of in real time that all things are impermanent um that all things are in are sort of unsatisfactory and all things are yeah not self, I guess, or or they're conditioned. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, anyway, I, again, my inner Darbakirti is telling me to like, I'm saying it wrong, but, but incompletion, as Carson said, is another good example. And again, the three characteristics is not the same thing as Dukkha. In fact, Dukkha is one of the three characteristics, but these things are all related, of course. Uh, shall we go a little bit off topic with this awesome comment from Todd Wayland? Yes, absolutely. All right, here it is. Todd says, Aura, what if all of us were to get together in Hollywood and enter into a meditative state? Would our collective meditative aura be able to destroy the demons in Hollywood? I would say yes. Yes, I think so. Um, but let's get into it. Ah, <laughs> <sighs> oh, man. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hate to black pill everybody. Um, lol. But uh, that. I think probably the media and especially like satanic pedophile Hollywood is probably the most terrifying, powerful force for evil that the world has ever seen. Um, and I think it would take quite a lot to fight it, especially if it, we're fighting it solely on like the uh, uh, spiritual level. Right. Like, I yeah. think maybe we could do better. Like focus all of our wrathful energy on the San Andreas fault. Yeah, pray to, <laughs> pray to Yellowstone. Concentrate Use it like a, le a lever, right? You know, access to exactly. that energy. Um, yeah, I mean, Storm, you're right. I think that um, that you would need a, a very powerful force to counteract that other powerful force. Uh, but I just want to say that, like, in, in theory, at least according to my beliefs, um, that, that, yes, you can... You can and are counteracting these forces when you manifest uh, good or holy or positive aura. And I, I do think that those things add up. And I do think actually believe that uh, enough people properly trained with enough personal power and with the right kinds of intentions absolutely could do something. Like, I do think you could set off like an aura bomb to destroy the demons in Hollywood. I do think it's possible. But I also agree with you, Storm, that it's like a monumental task and that like probably that's not going to happen that way. But I will also say... I would love if it did, though. I'm all for it. You know, I, I Storm, I was telling you how I like American football the other day or earlier. And one little saying they have is that because uh, they say like, oh, how many teams each year can win the Super Bowl? And then, you know, think, oh, there's 10 teams that could and, and 20 teams that couldn't or whatever. But one coach or whatever, I can't remember who it was, said something. Well, first of all, when you're making your list, you have to list the teams that are actually trying to win the Super Bowl that year. Because every year there's a bunch of teams that are like rebuilding or the owner doesn't give a shit. And so those teams are never going to win the Super Bowl because they don't even want to. Right. They're not even trying. Uh, and then you can go from there. So I would say for our our aura bomb, you know, in Hollywood, the the first requirement for actually achieving something like that is to want to do it. So I think that the important thing is to just, you know, is to talk about whether or not such things are real and 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 whether or not our actions have any uh, effect on them, because that's a precursor to even wanting to do something like that is believing that it's possible. So that to me is a really, really important thing is to is to want to win the psychic Super Bowl, if you will. And what's interesting is a bunch of um, kind of naive and, and bad, like a, like a leftist witches and stuff tried to do that to Trump. And we've seen it be, um, it has, has it done anything? I don't, I can't tell. I mean, Trump's kind of like a buffoon anyways, so <laughs> I don't know, but um, it doesn't seem to be, he, he hasn't been like struck down or anything dramatic. So, you know, it would, we would have to be very powerful. And interestingly, there, there's like, I don't know if you guys know this, but near Hollywood, I don't know how far it is from Hollywood, but there's like a smaller Hollywood and it's where like they make all the porn. That's like a smaller target that would be easier to take down. You know, I love that idea, actually. That's a really good point. 
and it's arguably more evil. Oh, definitely. No question. I mean, it, it yeah. has a smaller reach, but in terms of just like the, the level of like what's going on, it's definitely a lot worse. Yeah, yeah. I agree. That's a, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah. Love- and uh, for people listening and not watching uh, good comments, Todd says he believes it's possible. Carson says spiritual actions are more powerful than physical actions. I totally a hundred percent believe that I, I, <laughs> It's, you know, sometimes when you believe, when you start to believe something really strongly, you have to remind yourself that others don't necessarily and that they would be highly skeptical. And I used to be so highly skeptical of this stuff. And um, it's funny to look back and see the old me. Like the old me would be like, what are you talking about? No, but it's interesting because you can almost see like the physical as like the derivative of the spiritual in a way. Yes. Like it's, it's like sort of this pale reflection of the original thing. I so believe that to be true. I don't know. Um, I'm actually, you know, I actually think that's true as well. Yeah. I was thinking about something that, that is kind of, it kind of relates to this. You guys know about the golden spiral and the numbers by. Yeah. So no. essentially like, you know, you don't know about that. Okay. So never heard of um, it, no. the numbers by it's, it's okay. So it's a series of numbers and it's the only series that can be generated with two numbers. So you got one and then two, and then you got three and then you got five. And then, so you take the second number, add it to the number before it, and that's your next number, right? It's the Fibonacci sequence. It's the Fibonacci sequence, right? So if you look in nature, pretty much everything is kind of like a somewhat off approximation of that, right? And it's, um, it's, it's so interesting in sacred geometry. And there's a lot of plants. I actually posted one the other day, uh, talking to spook and the plant actually grows in the Fibonacci spiral in the golden ratio, right? So what it's like. It's like there's this pure structure in the in the golden rate in the Fibonacci sequence, and then everything that we've got in our reality is like the the best possible ref- or the a, a way to like manifest it in the imperfection of matter. Does that make sense? So it's like there's a spiritual reality, like you were talking about, of this geometric shape and pattern, and then everything is arranged according to it because you can't nothing is exact, right? Uh-huh. But like these plants that grow in the spiral, uh, spiral aloe is one of them. If you want to look up a picture of it, the bigger that plant gets, the more exact it starts to hit the numbers in the sequence and the more exact it replicates the spiral. So it's very cool, very cool stuff that like links up with that. And to me, that's beautiful and amazing and I don't understand it. And it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, you can see that stuff, um, you know, you can see like numbers, you can see it in a way like the numbers pre or the math or whatever pre-exists the form. Um, that's like a sort of a Platonic way of looking at it. And I, I don't think that that's wrong. You know, I don't really consider myself a Platonist in that respect. But, um, you know, these these things are, are real descriptions of reality. And, and um, it's just a matter of allowing yourself to look at it in that way that opens you up to you know, more sort of more profound truths or, or at least truths that reflect more on the human world, because, you know, I, I think that's ultimately what it comes back to. People can see stuff like a, a shell shaped like the, you know, a golden spiral or using the Fibonacci sequence and they can think, oh, that's really cool. But then they'll see some hippie post about it and they're like, oh, man, that's stupid. You just ruined it for me. But mm-hmm. but when something really starts to take root in your life philosophy is when you feel a personal effect on your day-to-day life um when when you start 
investigating these things and realizing that they have a change in like your felt experience and your relationships with other people and your relationship with your own concept of yourself, et cetera, et cetera. That's when something like the, what's this plant called again? The aloe? The uh, spiral aloe. That's when something like the spiral, the spiral aloe shape of it, like stops being this, you know, kind of a, just a neat little thing on one hand or this annoying thing that hippies post about, you know, and starts becoming like this profound, like mystical truth when you look at it. And again, I know that sounds like hippie shit, but it's, yeah, man. The problem with hippies is not that they're wrong about everything. It's that they often have a lot of truth and they just bury it under this extremely thick layer of bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Also dude, weed bro. Something else cool um, about that same like a set of numbers is if um, there's a way that you can take a triangle and you can set this up as uh, lines on a triangle and it will give you every possible harmonic system usable in music. It'll recreate the circle of fifths. It'll recreate uh, the Eastern Indian scale. It'll recreate the Asian Shakuhachi scale. It will literally show you every single possible um, harmonic uh, series that it literally every conceivable uh, like a uh, harmonic series that you could use for music. The same exact thing that is the plot to this shell really? and spiral. Yes, yes. I mean, there's definitely a reason why numbers and numerology is a pretty universal concept, a universal spiritual concept across numerous different cultures. Which it's it's just it seems that there's like this this very deep meaning in there, which is not immediately obvious, but definitely carries a lot of weight. Yeah. Do you guys know who Stephen Wolfram is? No. Of mm-hmm. Wolfram Alpha. I know what Wolfram Alpha is, but I don't know who it's named for now. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh, computer science uh, nerds, please, please spare me. No bully. Uh, I'm. I don't know anything about computer science. Um, but Stephen Wolfram is the creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram programming language. Um, and he wrote this book, I think about 20 years ago or so, called A New Kind of Science. And basically, he talked about he talked about a lot of stuff and it's full of math and about 80% of it was way over my head. It's actually a really cool book though. I recommend at least if you don't buy one, cause I think it's like $200 at least finding a copy in a bookstore somewhere and looking through it. Cause it's got really amazing, um, really amazing uh, graphics and pictures and stuff in it. And storm, he addresses this uh, you know, like the shapes of shells and everything, how they relate to mathematics. And he also, you guys know what cell, what a cellular automaton is. No. Yeah. Well, it's basically one of those programs where you have, um, like, imagine a grid, and there's a colored square in in one of the grid spaces, and then there's a a set of rules. Like, if the colored square has three white partners and two colored partners or whatever, then the third square is going to be colored, right? And then you just hit play, and you allow the cellular autonomous to basically play itself out according to this set of rules. And so you see, like, a little, like, petri dish of squares moving around and eventually they form like a stable pattern like it either all goes to white or all goes to green or you end up with these little like moving pieces that look like little cells have you ever seen one of those no that sounds really cool i know that some of our i maybe do be doing a bad uh explanation of it but i i'm sure that some of our listeners have seen or heard these before and there's also linear cellular automata automaton automata which um, basically you imagine a line of squares running across the top of the screen and those are either dark or light. And then 
the next line like prints below it according to the rules of like if it has a white partner and a, a dark partner then it becomes white or whatever and if it has a dark partner and two white partners or whatever then it becomes white whatever um and then the next line prints below that and prints below that prints below that and wolfram shows that it, with a very simple set of explanations and a very simple like uh, beginning state like a, a zero state on the first line that you will start getting patterns that look like shell patterns and that basically like and these incredibly complex patterns that we see like on zebras and cheetahs and um on like nautilus shells and things like that that you can recreate them with just uh these cellular automata rules and basically his suggestion in the book is that with like with the advent of like massive computing power that like there's a new way to do science which is instead of observing phenomena uh you can basically like pre-program things like a million times and then find what is the program that actually shows what's going on in nature and then you can say okay this like the coloration in this shell or on this cheetah or whatever is following this this particular program and of course the suggestion is that th these are just visually you know things that we can see visually right but they are a stand-in for who knows how much of the complexity of life. Like we, you know, who much, how much of like what we see as extremely complex phenomenon, like, you know, what a zebra stripes look like is actually based on an ex like a rule that could be stated in one sentence, right? So what about like human behavior? What about, uh, you know, cell structure and all kinds of things? Um, it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, so you're like using, you're like divining uh, natural laws. Yes, yeah. 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 yeah I, I, I encourage I people to look this up. We'll, we'll link it. But if you're listening right now, you can just Google like Wolfram, uh, a new kind of science or cellular automata, uh, and you'll find pictures of what I'm talking about. I would posit that the Fibonacci sequence would be the like uh, most simple version of one of those things. Like maybe like the most fundamental one. Uh, yeah, another, like the most universal one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing that's interesting and then i guess we can move on from this <laughs> but uh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's the thing called cymatics so what you can do is you can take uh it works really well with bass frequencies so you can take like a thin table and put it on top of a speaker and then you can play notes through the speaker and the oh yeah i've seen this you yeah. put sand on the tray and the sand will form into geometric shapes right those geometric shapes are actually a geometric representation of one of many possible harmonic series that contains that note. And if you play chords, you know, a chord is just multiple notes at the same time. Um, you get another shape and they all relate back. So it's like the math and the geometry and the actual reality of sound are all following this basic pattern. Very cool. Yeah, we should, I, I, I'm actually, even though I just went on a very long ramble about Stephen Wolfram, <laughs> I want everybody to know I'm actually self-editing right now because I have the deep temptation to go on, <laughs> like to continue rambling about this kind of stuff, but I will hold back. Maybe we'll save it for some, for another episode or, because I, I think it's really fascinating and it's like the, the implications are sort of endless when you stop and think about this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Probably worth a read. That's for sure. I am. I'm, I'm very interested in reading that. Uh, who knows how this philosopher's, name is pronounced iamblichus yeah i think that's pretty good that's uh from karsten read the theology of arithmetic okay also and, sounds uh, very cool yes um 
Hey, Storm King, remember one of our topics? Do you think this is a good lead into it right here? Oh, yes, it is. Okay. okay, so Todd says, if computers try to understand reality as subject and object without sentient consciousness, is AI actually the ego becoming a living being in and of itself? I'm okay, so not totally sure I understand the question, but we actually wanted to talk about this. So Todd is using his psychic powers to mind read us. So let's just talk about it. First of all, I'm impressed by Todd's power um, and, and Carson. <laughs> um, but so the ego is not alive. The ego is something that something that is alive is conscious of. So uh, the ego is basically like if you think of a red circle, the ego is the same kind of thing. It's just much more complex than a red circle. So the e egos are never alive. It also doesn't make sense to, to speak of something without consciousness understanding. So the question of is this is this computer program understanding anything or is it living? Those are it's a meaningless question because what it is it's just a it's just a good painting. Of a, of a being, you know what I mean? Like if I draw a man, a stick figure, that's not a being. A computer is just a really convincing. Sorry, you cut out there, which obviously goes out the window. Oh, I was saying um, the computer is is not going right. to be conscious. It's just uh, no. I guess it's you... just a really good. Yeah. What? <clears throat> anyway, so um, so we were going to talk about uh, simulation theory, which is this is a good lead into it. Yes. Yeah, so can you summarize for, for us what simulation theory is, Star? So simulation theory is the idea that, quote-unquote, we're living in a simulation. Um, what this means by the scientists who have put this kind of theory forward is very unclear because usually they're not, they don't know about metaphysics and they don't really think in terms of anything but self-existent entities and there's no kind of idea about like so the sort of base nature of things to begin with. So what does it mean to say we're in a simulation? But essentially that what we think of as the concrete reality is actually more like, um, okay, let me put it to you this way. It's simulation theory says that reality is rendered around you the way that a video game responds to your character. So it's not there. Like, I mean, simulation theory is kind of the idea that if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a sound? No, there is no tree. There is no woods. None of that happened. So that's that's the idea. That's simulation. Right, right. And like um, people can, you know, they they can use uh, simulation theory to sort of uh, explain all kinds of interesting phenomenon. Like I, I did. We're not bringing it up to completely shit on it because um, it is sort of an interesting mind exercise. But part of the reason we are bringing it up, we were discussing in our in our DMs, is that. It, it's nothing new. Like, it's not like the idea that we're living in. Yeah. I mean, you just explained it storm. Like, you know, the, you know, the tree falling in the forest or whatever, like th these things have been considered deeply for a long time. And from one perspective, you can see how Gnosticism in the West is a kind of simulation theory, right? Yeah. Yeah. It and, is techno Gnosticism. Yes. Techno Gnosticism is a great way of putting it. But on the other hand, um, you can look and see that like Buddhism or even, you know, forms of, of Hinduism also have the same idea, but emphasizing different parts. Cause I'm not trying to say Buddhism and Hinduism are Gnostic because I think that would be a mistake, yeah. but you can see when you compare them both to simulation theory, you can see how there's sort of some, uh, some similarities like that. Well, let me put it to you this way. So the basic assumption of, of uh, what your everyday layman thinks of as something existing is that it has an essence. It exists in and of itself in some kind of core. 
That's like the idea of the soul. So simulation theory is the idea that that's actually not the case. So what simulation theory really is, in my mind, it's a really awkward and and um, it's a really awkward and strange way of restating the Buddhist doctrine of, of emptiness. So which is basically that there is everything exists in a network of dependent dependent origination. Everything depends on everything else. And anything we can say about it uh, has the same kind of basic character. So it's uh, things conventionally exist in that we experience them and describe them that way, but they don't ultimately exist as self-existent essences. There's no immutable core, um, which is, you know, like I've been reading Nagarjuna a lot lately, and, and his project is to show that the concept of inherent essences is actually, it's, it's really incoherent with any of the stuff we actually observe. So simulation theory ends up being like a strange refutation of self-essences framed in like a computery kind of way. It's uh, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the annoying feature of the of of the simulation theory stuff is it's like, and I know this is low hanging fruit for me to make fun of this, but it's their fault for hanging their fruit so low. God damn it! <laughs> the the when whenever the latest philosophy like also like magically has to do with the latest technology, I'm I'm like I call bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, um, there's a thing like speaking of Freud, there's an the idea of like the hydraulic theory of 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 sexuality especially for males that this is why you know <laughs> this is getting a little off topic here but uh you know uh, the, the hydraulic theory is that like sexual desire builds up in you and you have to let it out like water behind a dam or or it's or else it's going to explode and in a very superficial way you know like when you when you're super horny on the timeline you know like then it does sort of feel that way sometimes but there's no there's no science behind that there's nothing that is not a scientific idea at all. It's just that, like in the 19th century, when they came up with this theory, uh, they, they were like, you know, all these advances were being made in, in hydraulics and stuff with plumbing and everything. And they're like, oh yeah, this is like, you know, it's, the semen in the, is with, in the balls is like stored there, you know, and it needs to get out. <laughs> it, it needs to get out through things. And and because people like, you know, let's say they're trying to be, uh, they're trying to do like a spiritual practice. They're trying to do no fat because they're trying to like enhance their meditation or because for moral reasons or whatever. And if they believe deep in their souls, this hydraulic theory, they're going to have this extra hard time, no pun intended, because, you know, because they believe that there's some sort of pressure valve that has. And this is what people say, like, oh, it's unhealthy to like not let the pressure out. Like, yeah, but where did that idea even come from? So to bring it back to the uh, from a lot of those Freudian types that we were discussing earlier, as interestingly enough, it seems. Uh, yes, and so to bring it back to computer simulation stuff, it's like, okay, now our our vision of reality is like, oh, it's like the Matrix, or it's like living inside of a virtual world, or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I guess so, kind of in a way, but that's so, well, it's like it's virtual, so gay, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's virtual in the sense that things appear as if they have these essences but they don't. So they're said to be like a dream or like an illusion. And something I will point out is that things are as they are, whether they have the quality of being self-existent essences or being empty of self-essence and dependently originated doesn't really make that much of a difference for you, except in at a very high philosophical level. You know what I mean? It doesn't change your experience very much at all. So like it's a little bit, it's a little bit, I mean, it, it is it does matter in spiritual things, but in terms of like practical everyday stuff, this this doesn't matter that much. Emptiness is really important to understand because it leads you directly to the Buddhist path and into enlightenment, out of attachment and suffering and samsara. 
So it is important, but you, you don't actually have to have that to get there as long as you can get that Satori experience, at least, at least in Zen. So, you know, like, like I mean, or we're talking earlier, let's say you go to a magic show and the magician appears to make a rabbit disappear into a hat. Okay. So that illusion was actual. It was real. We're not saying that the illusion isn't real. It's just different than it appears to be. So if everything's an illusion, everything's like a dream or a simulation, it's a real dream or simulation. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. I mean, it's it really is. It's like they're just arguing it's a simulation. It's I mean, the conventional metaphor that often gets repeated within Buddhism is the dream or the moon reflecting off the surface of a wa of the water. So, it, I mean, they're real, but they're illusory. Yeah. Yeah. And if it sounds confusing or whatever, that's because it is confusing while you're in ignorance. I mean, that's the point of the practice is that these things are very profound, but very subtle. And, and you know, on the one hand, incredibly easy to grasp. But on the other hand, like, man, you know, if you don't already have the grasp, it's it just keeps slipping through your fingers. It's difficult, right? It's well, I mean, difficult. The, an easy an easy way to put it out there is like, so so what what Mariamaka, uh metaphysics are, what the philosophy is. Um, is the middle, it's the middle position between eternalism and nihilism. So nihilism is totally incoherent because there are things. We have this experience of things and we have these conventional understandings that hold for the most part. Eternalism is completely incoherent with the idea of cause and effect. I mean, if something has an eternal self-essence, nothing, it can't depend on anything. It can't have a cause because a cause would be a dependency and that would make it not the thing that sustains itself in total. And therefore, you would see things with self-essences. There would be no logic to when they arise and when they don't. Like if basketballs were self-existent objects, there would be no rhyme or reason to where and when there is a basketball or not. And I mean, there would be basketballs everywhere. It makes no sense. No. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the other side of eternalism would be that if a thing was actually self-existent, it couldn't be the cause of anything else as well because that would change the thing's essence, wouldn't it? It depends on how you how you characterize that. I mean, because it, it depends on if you think that the that the um, the dependency is two ways. You know that what this would mean is that if if something with a self essence causes something else, you'd either have to say some aspect of that something else is going to have to be inside the cause. So this is the classic debate about firewood and flame. So if some part of flame is you know is contained in the firewood. That means that there's a relationship there and thus a dependence and thus neither one has a self-essence. But if they're, the flame doesn't depend on the firewood at all, then there would just be flame everywhere. So, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, that, that is, that is um, one of the positions Nagarjuna goes over and kind of debunks really quickly and simply in the fundamental verse. A uh, couple of comments here. Uh, Carson earlier on said when, we were, when you mentioned Thomistic Philosophy says in Thomistic philosophy, even the soul is not self-subsistent. It has its raison d'etre outside itself. And without getting into Thomism or anything, I just want to use that as an opportunity to restate something that we should state from time to time on here, which is our our humbleness, um, our humility about some of these, these topics. Um, especially when we talk about Western philosophies, I think we you know, there's this tendency to give them a bit of a short shrift because part of the reason for the show is to like talk about the differences between the Dharma and other mm -hmm. philosophies. And as Westerners, we're sort of steeped in Western philosophies. And so I think, you know, 
that's good because we it gets good discussions. But it comes, of course, with the risk of giving these sort of like you know <laughs> very short bumper sticker versions of of the philosophies that we're we're discussing. And uh, inevitably, I think we're going to get some things wrong. So I just wanted to use this opportunity to say, you know, we still have like a ton of respect for the intricacies and the profundity of these other philosophies. It's, even though sometimes it sounds like we're like, well, that's just dumb. You know, that's certainly not, at least for me, that's not how I feel. Yeah, no. And, and I get, I get really wound up about this stuff because it's like, it's something I know a lot about my, I have academically trained in philosophy and and I love I love this stuff. This is so fun for me. So I like get really wound up about it. But yeah, I mean, you know, there are actually a lot of philosophers in the West who have gotten really close to to the same kind of exposition of the Dharma, like Sextus Empiricus, Empiritus. I'm not sure. One of those is how you say it. Uh, Puro, uh, Wittgenstein, to to some extent Derrida, but not really. But it's close. Heidegger was very close. They're, the West has gotten really close to this in, in many points. So it's not yeah. as if Western philosophy can just be thrown out. And also Western philosophy is great for all kind of moral stuff, conventional stuff, mathematics, science. It's, you can't, it's not something you can just dismiss, even though we might sound like we're doing that. No, I mean, I think that there's a lot of points of agreement between like conventional Western theology and Thomism. And it points to, I think, similarities within Buddhism as well. So, no, there's a lot of validity and truth within that as well. Um. I don't want to get too into this one because we've addressed it before, but I, I actually, I just want to call this one out. Uh, Todd says being on day 32 of no fat, what's my power level. I don't have a diagnosis for you, my friend, but that's a really awesome. And B um, without getting into it too much here, I just want to restate something that I've said before, because I think guys need to hear this from time to time. Um, no fat is real. It's good. And you should do it. That's, that's all I say. Hey, can you, you pull guys, up? Can sorry, you pull up that last comment uh, Karsten made? Yes. Um, so Karsten says, uh, "Does middle way? This is, of course, the famous uh, characterization of Buddhism as a path. Does middle way also refer to the idea of the center, like the unchanging center around which everything revolves?" So I'll take a stab at answering this. So the middle way, in in the way I've been using it here, is it's a middle metaphysical position between. Eternalism, which is self-essences, and nihilism, which is nothing. So it's we're saying things do have a type of existence, but they don't exist as self-essences. So that's what the middle way is in metaphysics. Uh, there's like a moral teaching called the middle way, too. Somebody else can answer that one. Uh, that's, uh, I mean, as far as it being a center, I mean, it's it's almost, it's, it's it it isn't it's it's not so much like a uh, middle between the two as it is going beyond both extreme views of annihilationism and eternalism. Um, but I mean, as far as a center, it, it's hmm, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't really actually have an answer for that, but I just want to be clear: like the original meaning for the middle way is is actually kind of mundane. Um, the the Buddha was. If you guys know the life story of the Buddha, for our listeners, I'm sure most of you know it. But after he left his home to seek uh, seek answers because uh, he saw that all beings um, suffer, grow ill, age, and die, um, and he was very distraught about this and was searching for um, some sort of release from that. And he went and studied with all these different monks and teachers and everything, and um, part of his 
sort of the penultimate stage of his path was like extreme self-mortification, right? So just totally, um, you know, hurting, hurting the body and starving yourself and sitting in difficult positions for days on end, that kind of thing. Uh, and then very famously in the, um, in the story of the Buddha, um, he, uh, in, it gets told a few different ways, but like a, a maid brings him some, he decides that he's going to eat, you know, <laughs> and he drinks this um, milk or, or rice milk, depending on how you, which story you listen to. And, um, and decides that while not the indulgence and sense pleasures, like just, you know, wallowing in like drugs and alcohol and sex and everything is, is not good. Also not good is, um, is just completely destroying yourself, starving yourself, you know, being extreme in self-mortification. And that there was a, a middle way um, between those two, um, which is austere, which is restrained, um, which is, but which is healthy. And, and then he, he likened that to his path, that each, each factor on the Eightfold Path, which is uh, right understanding, right thought, right speech, uh, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, that each one of those things that like was, was to, was to find a balance. You know, it's, it's not that different from the, uh, the Aristotelian idea of the mean um, mm -hmm. bet between two extremes. And, that, uh, and then the middle way is a path that the, the the it's not some sort of um metaphysical thing you're trying to reach or whatever but it, the, in order to get to enlightenment you should walk this middle way um while you're training the mind to see the ultimate nature of reality so there are more uh, meanings attached to it and there's more philosophy behind all that it's actually quite a, a deep thing it does have to do with the dependent origination and everything but that that is sort of one of the original meanings for the middle way the way I like to understand the, uh, the philosophical part of it is that I'll describe it like this. So, so this philosophy side of it, um, it's, you can think of attachment and delusion as like a computer virus and think of your mind as a computer. So what, so what this philosophy ends up doing is turning that virus back on itself to the point where it destroys itself and what's left, there's nothing obstructing your clear view of what is. So that's the whole point of of um, the fundamental verse of the middle way and Nagarjuna's investigations of everything and his conception of the the middle way between reification and nihilism. That's it's all just a means to that end. And like uh, Jay Garfield says in his translation of the book, um, yeah, I should have written this quote down. He says um, emptiness is simply the conventional nature of what we call phenomenon, and the emptiness of emptiness is that that is as far as it goes. Somewhere Dharmakirti is reing because you're using the Garfield translation. You know, I, <laughs> no, I, I didn't mean I to bring up. I didn't mean to bring up the problem with it. I, I I thought it was awesome. I know that he's got that he's like a galug or whatever, and, and yeah, into it. But well, he, yeah, he I mean, seems right to on. be like spot on with his interpretation. You know, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I I don't know a thing about it. I mean, I, I don't know a thing about it. So um, I just think it's funny. It's like an ongoing thing between you guys. about which, Kaku, which, what is the deal with the with the gloves? Well, they have a particular view called, uh, I mean, it's rangtong, which is just basically empty. It, a thing is conventionally empty of itself and there's nothing beyond that versus um, shentong, which is there's something else into emptiness, that there's a, some kind of characteristic to emptiness is more or less. I mean, admittedly, this is not something I understand very well. 
And um, yeah, basically the Rangtong view is mostly specific to the Gelugs and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not, I don't really find their opinion to be completely coherent. And so yeah, that, that's basically my take on it. That does sound kind of similar to part of Garfield's explication, but it, it kind of, I mean, it seems to end up in the right spot for me because he ends up where, well, we can't really say anything ultimately, which is, which is where you're supposed to end up. Yeah. Right. That type of thing is relegated to the conventional and uh, that's, that's where you want to be. That, yeah. Yep. It, this is admitted. I mean, emptiness is something that admittedly goes quite a bit over my head, unfortunately. Like beyond the most basic definitions, it's it is um, extremely confusing. Yeah, I mean, when you go down the road of like trying to understand it and and how it interacts with all these other concepts, it ends up basically burning everything down. So that's that's why I compared it to like a turning the virus back on itself because you you end up at we have our conventional language and what we can say as far as that goes, but outside that is just the the uh, the dharmata, the tathata, the suchness of of what is right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Though it's actually, it's from what I understand, at least I'm, I might be misrepresenting the Gelug Rangtong position, but it's basically like once you've established that a thing is empty of itself, there's nothing else. Like the Dharmata that it's just, you're done. It's, it, it almost uncomfortably sounds to me like Stephen Batchelor type secular Buddhism. I know it's actually not, but it seems uncomfortably close to that. Hmm. That's interesting. I'd like to hear DK's take on that next time we get him back on. Yes. I, I'd actually be curious because he definitely knows a he's much more comfortable with this topic than I am. That's for sure. Well, guys, we've been going for a little uh, over an hour now, an hour 15 or so. Uh, are there other topics you guys wanted to address? I'm not in a rush to get out of here. but uh, One thing I did notice is it seems Todd has a question. That's Yeah, this, this one here? Uh, yes. Yeah, so Todd's question is, why is the Buddha today depicted as a liberal humanist, individualist savior who had no respect for tradition? First of all, I'll say we sort of addressed this on our show about California Dharma. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't give an, an answer. I think it's a lot of it has to do with just like how he was um, appropriated by uh, certain historians in the 19th century who wanted to read in this, um, who basically read into Indian history the same kind of pattern that occurred in European history. And so they transform the Buddha into this kind of Martin Luther against Brahmanism. And so he becomes this kind of negative figure who's tearing down tradition to rebuild this kind of individualistic, almost Protestant-like religion in place of the old one, which isn't the case at all. I mean, it was... I mean, Buddha, the, the, the Dharma that he taught was not really designed to ever replace or supplant Hinduism in completely. It was just sort of this alternative thing that would be available outside of the tradition of Brahmanism. Yeah, not. and there's, there's another reason, um, which is that um, the question could just be, why is X depicted as liberal humanist individual savior for with no respect for tradition? And the... In this sentence, uh, X is the Buddha, but just put in anything, right? Because part of the answer to that question is everything is everybody is described either either as if it's a good person, then they're a liberal humanist, individualist, atheist with no respect for tradition, right? And if that person is somehow illiberal um, and not individualist and not uh, and and respects tradition, then that person's like evil. So to the degree that people 
who think this way want the Buddha to be a good guy, then they have to depict him that way. I mean, it's as simple as that. It almost has nothing to do with Buddhism. It's just literally all all of humanity and history is has to fit into this dichotomy for people. So that's to me, that's the main reason. Yeah, that actually, I mean, yeah, basically he's appropriated to support the narrative. And so, yeah, I, that, that's, that, I think that's actually probably the biggest reason as to why he's depicted like this today. Cause it's yeah. the only form of good that they recognize. So if they, they want to say that he's good, they have to say this. Yeah. So, I mean, the Buddha totally loves like weed bro. And if you want, <laughs> <laughs> what fifth yeah. precept? Yeah. Storm, what uh, about you? Go ahead. Um, well, you know, my comment is that I don't know enough about Hinduism at the time to say for myself whether or not that was like um, iconoclastic what the Buddha was doing. Uh, but it, it kind of seems I may be wrong in this, but I don't I don't know if is enlightenment considered to be available like it's something anyone can get if they do the work during that time. Because if it's not, then that would be an iconoclastic message. And that's what I've heard over and over again, but you know, it could be wrong. Um, as far as like anyone, you mean like uh, with respect to say like caste or social? Yeah, it, with respect to caste. Um, I've heard different things about this. Like there's like supposedly some one Indian text that says Buddhas are only born in like higher castes. And then there's another that says in theory, it's available to everyone. Uh, I don't think there's really a consistent message there. Um, so, so then it definitely wasn't like this, this, uh, Martin Luther esque rebellion. It was just something else. No, it was not. It but was it this not. way, I mean, Sri Lanka still, I mean, has been Buddhist for centuries and still has a caste system. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I'm sorry. I'm getting a little irked. So it's not, a, it's a different, it's in, it was a new philosophy. It was a new religion. It was a new way of, uh, uh, of trying to, he understand the universe and 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 reach happiness. So in that sense, of course, it was di of course it cha challenged or changed the ideas that were in existence before it. If but that's just like the Nate. That's just human. That's just history. That's just right, what happens. Yeah. In Iconoclasm is like you know, or rebellion or whatever is the idea that like this is a an authoritative structure that's like bad, and I'm gonna smash it and change it because I'm a rebel or whatever, right? And yeah, I'm, he was like, emphatically not doing that. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. So no, it's like if you look at historically and within classical India before the Muslims came and killed everyone, uh, it, there was like this tendency for rulers to simultaneously support both like Buddhism and Hinduism, and nothing about so the social situation really changed. So this idea that he was some kind of reformer of that sort is just complete nonsense. At least when you look at what historically actually happened. Very good. Plus, he was a prince. Um. Cool. Uh, Storm, with uh, Orkagu, are there other um, topics you wanted to bring bring up? I have gone through uh, everything I had here. I didn't really have anything else I wanted to add. Well, we can close it up. I'll read a koan for this week. All right. Cool. Yeah. So um, thanks, everybody, for questions and comments. And um, like I said at the top, we will be back to our our regular format very soon. Um, and these will be going up quicker on the RSS. And I think what we're going to have 
even bigger um, audiences in the live stream because frankly, uh, we get more retweets and stuff when uh, Dharma Kirti is involved because he's so popular. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so anyway, this has been a really fun couple of weeks for the three of us, I think. And I ho really hope everybody has enjoyed listening. And um, yeah, we really appreciate our listeners, commenters and everything. So with that said, uh, take it away. All right, so here's the case. This is from the Mumon Khan a.k.a. the gateless gate. The wind was flapping a temple flag, and two monks were having an argument about it. One said the flag was moving. The other said that the wind was moving. They could not come to an agreement on the matter. However, they argued back and forth. The patriarch approached and said, It is not that the wind is moving. It is not that the flag is moving. It is that your honorable minds are moving. The two monks were struck with awe. This has been another edition of Right Wing Dharma Squads. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll be back next week.